Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. This is Brother Jonathan. In this episode, we're going to be talking about one good reason to believe. Um, there's nothing new about what I'm going to talk about. Uh, this has been something that secular philosophers and scientists have discussed for centuries. And I don't take credit for anything in this episode. If there is anything good in it, then it's because of other men's labors in their respective fields of logic, philosophy, and uh, one of them is an astrophysicist. Um, I'll give you their names at the end if you want to look them up. There are several good debates on YouTube by them that you can watch for free, and I'll give the names of some of them um, at the end of the episode. Now, I know that there are places on the internet where the apologetic that I use in this episode is supposedly refuted. I read atheist forums and blogs sometimes, too. And I find it ironic that these guys think that they've answered anything, because their answers show that they didn't even understand it. In addition to why I believe what I'm going to talk about is correct, if you understand it, and that's the biggest hurdle for people to understand it, then you'll, un you'll see why these bloggers don't have a leg to stand on. So before I begin, though, I will acknowledge that I don't believe that the presuppositional apologetic is the most effective way to get all the way from the idea of origins to a belief in the gospel. There are several steps from point A to point C, but everything that from everything that I've seen so far, I believe that it is unanswered to this day regarding the issue of origins. I have never seen a cogent rational answer. Every single answer that I've seen has been a straw man fallacy, question-begging epithet, begging the question. I have not seen a logically consistent, cogent answer for any other answer to this question. But for, most, for some people, it doesn't close the circle. It doesn't meet the gap between evidence and belief. And I do see some merit to that. So what I decided to do was to stretch out the issue over three episodes to try and present a good argument for what I believe to be the necessary steps. I believe those three steps are, one, from origins to God. Um, by origins, I mean the discussion of how we got here. And by God, I simply mean a general understanding of a God concept, though I will argue this point in this episode mainly use, using the biblical creationist worldview, and I'll answer using logical and philosophical arguments. And step two, from deism, or God, to the God of the Bible. In this, I mean to argue that it is the God of the Bible who distinguishes himself apart from all other God concepts in the world in a way that makes belief in the God of the Bible justifiable. I will plan to argue this point in a couple of weeks in another episode using logical and evidential arguments. So if you're looking for what is normally considered to be evidence, that would be the one to focus on. In the first episode, we're mainly talking about logical and philosophical evidence, argumentation, or proofs. Step number three would be from the God of the Bible, because that's not the last step, to belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, i.e. the gospel. In this episode... I will argue for the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a historical event, and therefore making it justifiable to believe it. I will plan to argue this point after the second point in another episode using the minimal facts. That is, I will mainly use the data or evidence that is accepted by critical scholars. By scholars, 
I mean those that have degrees in the appropriate field to speak about the subject matter. They actually know the data. They're not just bloggers on the internet. So using the minimal facts method, I will take the evidence that is accepted by atheistic and agnostic scholars sometimes and show that even with the limited evidence that is accepted by them, the resurrection of Jesus Christ should be considered a historical event. Now, that's the plan. Obviously, pending some unforeseen event, it is subject to change. Lord willing, that is what I'm planning, though. So, let's begin. First, we need to talk about presuppositions and the nature of evidence. Everyone believes certain things. The things that you hold to most strongly, but normally take for granted, are called presuppositions. Presuppositions are beliefs that are assumed at the outset before any investigation of evidence. These are presupposed and control our interpretation of evidence, things such as the laws of logic. You bring that to the table without even thinking about it, because you, in the back of your mind, don't feel that you need to argue about it. We naturally think and reason with such laws of logic as the law of non-contradiction. When you walk out of your house in the morning and see your car in the driveway, you don't automatically think, I see my car in the driveway, but I wonder if it is also somewhere else. Or you have a tendency to not think, I know the laws of physics and chemistry made my car start yesterday morning, but what if today they turn my car into a mushroom when I turn the ignition? It sounds silly, but mainly because I'm using obvious examples. If you see your car in the driveway, then you know that it cannot, at the same time, in the same sense, be simultaneously somewhere else. This assumes the logical law of non-contradiction, and it also assumes the basic reliability of your sense of sight. The reason that you have confidence that the same physics and chemistry that were in operation yesterday to start your vehicle will operate today in the same fashion is because you assume the uniformity of nature, or what's called the principle of induction. You believe the universe operates in a general law-like fashion. You don't expect that today water is not flammable, and tomorrow it might be like napalm. These are examples of presuppositions that are the basis for how we look at things. Indeed, without the uniformity of nature, the inductive principle, could the scientific method operate? Hypothesize, observe, test, and repeat. If there were no uniformity of nature to guarantee that the universe operates in a law-like fashion, then you would have no rational basis for believing that given the same conditions, things would operate the same way. If that were true, we couldn't even study the weather. And we'll talk more about that later. But in all that you do, you bring certain basic beliefs to the table. And these basic beliefs govern how you look at and think about things. Things such as your belief that the, your senses are basically reliable. It's rare that you immediately question something about your sense of taste, sight, touch, smell, or hearing. You believe them to be basically reliable. You didn't study and come to the conclusion that your senses are basically reliable. Think about it. Could you study without using your senses to examine them? You would have to use your senses to do so. How about logic? Could you think about things and reasonably investigate whether or not logic is true without using logic in your thinking? Could you frame an argument for or against something without first presupposing that pr propositional statements ordered in a certain manner may lead you to a rational conclusion? 
This is part of the problem with the discussion of origins. Some people think that we can look at evidence neutrally, the myth of neutrality. They think that we should put aside our biases and examine things objectively. That's impossible, though. The nature of evidence is such that it is interpreted. There is no such thing as an observed evidence that is uninterpreted by a presuppositional bias. For instance, both secular scientists and creation scientists examine the same evidences. Most people don't realize that. People think that there are two separate piles of evidence that scientists are sorting out to say, well, this one is mine and that one is yours. No, both sides in the origins debate see everything as supporting their view. There is a reason for this. They have different presuppositions. They have a different standard by which they determine truth. An evolutionist who believes in, in billions of years looks at the Grand Canyon and says, wow, what a monumental evidence for millions of years. The creationist looks at the Grand Canyon and says, wow, what a monumental evidence for the worldwide flood of Noah. Both claim to have science to back them up. Why is that? It is because they are interpreting the evidence based on their presuppositions. The evolutionist believes that the earth is millions of years old and interprets all evidence in light of his belief. The creationist believes that the earth was created in six literal 24-hour days and interprets the evidence in light of that belief. Both of them don't see a problem in that, and both see a problem in how the other one does that. To say that the evidence speaks for itself is not only untrue, it's also a fallacy. It's called the fallacy of reification. The evidence is a word which describes things which cannot speak for themselves. A rock does not come out of the ground and say, I am so many million years old. No, people examine evidence and make conclusions based upon how they interpret the evidence in light of their already assumed presuppositions. To deny this is to already lose the battle because you are basing your viewpoint on an error in reasoning. Nobody is neutral. It's a logical impossibility. People who think people should, or can for that matter, set aside their presuppositions, have not understood this principle. Think about it. Can you set aside your basic belief in the reliability of your senses when applying the scientific method, when it includes the word observe? Can you set aside your basic belief in the laws of logic while applying the scientific method which requires you to form a hypothesis? All people have presuppositions. The question is, who has the correct ones, and how do we examine them? So let's talk about worldviews. Everyone has a worldview. Even if you have never put thought into it, you have a worldview. Your worldview is a network of our most basic beliefs about reality, in light of which observations are interpreted. All of your presuppositions put together make up your worldview. You can't escape having a worldview, because in order for you to not have a worldview, you can't believe anything at all. Literally anything. You can't believe in math. You can't even believe in the reliability of your own memory. You have to understand that worldviews have consequences. Whatever you choose as your worldview leads you to other beliefs, which lead to other beliefs, which eventually lead to what you do. Hitler did what he did because his worldview justified it. You can't read Mein Kampf without seeing that as true. It's the same thing for the rest of us. 
The reason that people come together to try to dialogue and end up feeling like they're banging their head on a wall is because you're talking to someone who has a different worldview. This is nothing new. This is the common thing that if you take philosophy classes or logic classes. We acknowledge this all the time when it comes to things like politics, but when it comes to science, religion, and philosophy, we think we can ignore it sometimes. A good example of how different worldviews result in different conclusions of evidence is DNA. An evolutionist looks at DNA and concludes that because different animals are alike in their DNA to a certain percentage, that they must be descended from the same parent. A creationist looks at the same information and believes that it bears witness to a common designer. It makes sense to a creationist that their DNA would match to a certain extent because we all live on the same planet made by the same creator. Both look at the evidence in light of different standards for determining truth. This is why in order for us to get to the bottom of the debate, we have to examine our presuppositions that determine our interpretation. And by the way, when evolutionists say that humans are descended from apes because we share a certain amount of DNA likeness, they fail to mention that we also share 50% of our DNA with a banana. And I don't see half men, half banana people anywhere. So let's talk about your chain of reasoning. All of your beliefs are based on a belief that you have in something else. You believe this is true because, if I was to ask you why, you would say, well, because of this. And it shows that you believe this, you know, point A, because you have belief in point B. Think about how a child continues to ask the question why over and over again. Eventually, if you keep asking why you believe a particular thing, you will reach a wall where there is something that you take for granted. You assume. Inevitably, it comes down to a certain belief that is at the base of it all. If you want to illustrate this principle, think of a ladder. Each rung on the ladder leads to the next rung. But the ladder itself has to rest on something solid that upholds the entire thing. If it's not resting on something solid, then you aren't going to use it. Imagine trying to use a ladder by setting it on water. Unless there is something to uphold the ladder, it won't be used. The same thing goes for your worldview and presuppositions. Each belief that you hold is predicated upon another, and another, and another, until you have to hit something that is known. I must emphasize that. You have to, at the very basis of your worldview, be resting on something that is known and not just believed. And this is what we'll call your ultimate standard. Ultimate because it is predicated upon nothing else. It must be self-accounting. And it must be known. Otherwise, all the beliefs that follow from it have no basis in to be held as truth. They are simply opinion because they cannot be substantiated. So let's talk about the ultimate standard a little bit more. If you didn't have an ultimate standard, a reference point for determining truth that is known and not just believed, then you could never know anything. And that's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about beliefs. We're talking about knowledge. I don't like arguing for probability. I don't think it benefits very much. I'm not talking about what's probably true. I'm arguing about what is necessarily true. If you don't know that your ultimate standard, upon which all of your beliefs rely, is true, then you cannot be certain of any of your beliefs at all, because they are reliant ultimately upon the truth of that one point. You are then arguing an irrational belief, and not anything true and certainly not anything scientific. 
You're arguing a philosophy, not science. Since all of your beliefs go back to one single proposition, remember the latter, it has to rest on something. If you don't know that ultimate standard is true, then you can't know anything is true at all. A ladder doesn't rest on nothing. It is anchored to something that holds the thing up. And we're not just talking about philosophy or religion here. You can't know anything if you do not have that ultimate standard that you know is true. Because everything else rests upon it and is reliant upon its validity. If it's not true, then you have no basis to assert anything at all. You couldn't say, I know mathematics is true. Because I could say, why? And if you can't tell me something that you know that is not arbitrary, that is not opinion, that is logically consistent and cogent, then you have no basis to know that all mathematics work the same way consistently all the time. Or, I know that cyanide is poisonous. You can't assert anything if you don't have an ultimate standard that is known as true. You have no reference point. You have to realize that if you don't have a reason to believe something, then you don't know it's true. Some would say that they have a reason for what they believe, but the problem is they're not getting what I'm saying. You can't use logic, for instance, unless you can justify its existence by your worldview. You can't use mathematics unless you can justify its existence by your worldview. And we'll be illustrating this in a few minutes. So when we're talking about examining worldviews and the presuppositions that make them up, how can we examine them? By what standards can we examine these things? And we'll settle on three things by which we can examine worldviews and their presuppositions, because every single worldview is reliant upon these things to be true. Every single worldview. So first, whatever a person chooses as his or her ultimate standard will lead to other beliefs, which will lead to other beliefs, etc. And the beliefs that we are led to by our ultimate standard must not contradict each other. A true worldview must be logically consistent within itself. It cannot have internal contradictions. If a worldview did have contradictions, then it cannot be entirely true. Imagine if your car could be in your driveway and not in your driveway at the same time in the same sense. That's impossible in our universe because it is a contradiction. So consistency is one of our criterions. Next, even if a worldview is internally consistent, that doesn't mean necessarily that it's true. A worldview must be able to provide what are called the preconditions of intelligibility or the preconditions of knowledge. These are things that must be true in order to know anything. And I've named a few of them already. Um, things such as the basic reliability of your memory. If your memory is unreliable, then you could never learn anything by observation because you would never be able to trust what you remembered happened in the past in order to conjecture about the future. This is something that is necessary for human knowledge. It's necessary that your memory be reliable to operate the scientific method. Um, next, the basic reliability of your senses. Without reliable senses, sensory observation would never be possible. Science would be impossible, and humans could never even begin to learn. Again, this is something that, else that is necessary for the scientific method. Next, the laws of logic. 
the strongest evidence to show that the laws of logic are necessary for human knowledge is when you consider that you can't even argue against them without using them. Can you make an argument that they aren't needful without using them to make an argument? It's like trying to argue against the existence of air while all the while you're breathing it. Next, and this is the big one, the uniformity of nature, or as we called it earlier in philosophy, it's referred to as the principle of induction or the inductive principle. This is a big one, but it is the hardest to understand because we just take it for granted. We're so used to taking it for granted that tomorrow will generally continue as today regarding how the universe operates. And that seems self-evident, but it's actually very, very hard to account for. Basically, this is the knowledge that the universe works in a law-like fashion. It enables us to predict the exact minute of a sunrise 100 years in the future. And this is one of the things that a worldview and origins theory must account for. See, because the universe is upheld in a law-like fashion, an origins theory has to explain it. Otherwise, it's not true. And then finally, as the third point that we'll be examining worldviews, it cannot be arbitrary. Um, arbitrary means it cannot be believed without rational justification. If it is your subjective, it's just opinion, prejudice, or conjecture, and we have no basis to consider it as true. And it ought not to be taught as true. This is especially important when considering origins and the existence of God. If I was to say something like, I believe in God, and it's not important that I don't have a reason to believe so. Atheists would rightly not have any reason to believe in God. They would say, well, it's just your opinion. Even so, if anyone says it's not important that we have a justifiable reason to believe a worldview, they are being just as irrational. And that's what they, they think of as faith. If a person cannot provide good reasons to believe something, then no one has any reason to consider it is genuine knowledge. Genuine knowledge consists of things that are true. Just because something is believed does not make it true. Things such as mere opinion or prejudicial conjectures fall under the category of being arbitrary. If a worldview is true, it cannot be arbitrary. Now, you really have to grasp this. Your worldview is supposed to be in agreement with reality. If it is true, then it will conform to reality, or better yet, reality will be explained by it and make sense of it. Origins, whatever the answer is, should account for everything in existence that is a result of, quote-unquote, the beginning. If it is our origin, then it would have to explain everything. So if a theory or worldview cannot account for these things, then it is necessarily false. And that's why we're choosing these things. They are necessary for human knowledge, science, and they bear witness to human experience. Only the worldview that is correct can pass all these tests. The true worldview is the one that is non-arbitrary, internally consistent, and provides the preconditions of intelligibility. And we're only going over a few of the preconditions of intelligibility. It is a long list. But at this point, I want to expand on something further, the uniformity of nature. So many people have a problem understanding why this is important, 
that I want to elaborate on it more. This principle is also called induction. You see, in order to do science, we take for granted that the universe is understandable, that it can be quantified in a way the mind can comprehend. We assume order, and that's why we try to figure it out. This order and predictability is what enables scientists to make predictions about the future. I have yet to hear a scientist say, well, we, that's, ex that's expectable because, you know, the universe is just random chance, you know, you know, can't expect anything, can't guess on anything, can't hypothesize about anything. I have yet to somebody hear somebody actually say that. Now, here is the definition of the principle of induction from a college textbook on logic. The principle of induction. The principle underlying all inductive arguments that nature is sufficiently regular to permit the discovery of causal laws as having general application. That's from Copey and Cohen's Introduction to Logic, 14th edition, page 624. Don't underestimate the importance of this precondition of knowledge. The same logic textbook had this to say of the principle of induction in its chapter on logical fallacies. Here's a quote from uh, page 141 in the same textbook. It would be wrong to suppose that only silly authors make this mistake. Even powerful minds are on occasion snared by this fallacy. Uh, he's talking about uh, circular reasoning. As is illustrated by a highly controversial issue in the history of philosophy. Logicians have long sought to establish the reliability of inductive procedures by establishing the truth of what is called the principle of induction. This is the principle that the laws of nature will operate tomorrow as they operate today, that in basic ways nature is essentially uniform, and that therefore we may rely on past experience to guide our conduct in the future. That the future will be essentially like the past is the claim at issue, but this claim, never doubted in ordinary life, turns out to be very difficult to prove. Some thinkers have claimed that they could prove it by showing that when we have in the past relied on the inductive principle, we have always found that this method has helped us to achieve our objectives. They ask, why conclude that the future will be like the past? And answer, because it has always been like the past. As David Hume pointed out, however, this common argument is a petitio. It begs the question. The point at issue is whether nature will continue to behave regularly. That it has done so in the past cannot serve as proof that it will do so in the future, unless one assumes the very principle that is here in question, that the future will be like the past. Hence, Hume, granting that in the past the future has been like the past, asked the telling question with which philosophers still tussle. How can we know that future futures will be like past futures. They may be so, of course, but we cannot assume that they will be for the sake of proving that they will. That was Copian Cohen's Introduction to Logic, 14th edition, page 141. Both David Hume and Bertrand Russell stated the problem of this principle, and neither one of them are in any way friendly to Christianity. But they admitted this is a huge issue to tussle with. Without the uniformity of nature, science and knowledge are impossible, though. In essence, most worldviews cannot meet even this precondition of intelligibility. They cannot give a reason for why the laws of nature will continue to behave regularly. To assume that it will 
simply because they always have, is to use circular reasoning. Circular reasoning is when you arbitrarily assume the very thing that is to be proved for the sake of proving it. Why will the future resemble the past? Because it always has. That argument can be restated this way. There will be uniformity of nature in the future because there is uniformity of nature. The question, though, is not whether or not we have uniformity of nature. All agree on that. The question is why we have uniformity in nature. A worldview must explain why we have it. And we'll see this better illustrated when we begin internally critiquing worldviews. Remember, though, if something cannot provide a good reason to believe it, then it cannot be considered as genuine knowledge. Something must be known for it to be considered true. It cannot just be believed. So, this is how we'll critique worldviews. The procedure that we'll go through in examining these worldviews for validity will be as follows. One, I'll begin by constructively showing that the Christian faith accounts for all preconditions of intelligibility while being non-arbitrary and internally consistent. I will be spending the next episode in this series more specifically on what sets Christianity apart as the one true standard for determining truth above all other religions and God concepts in the world. Since I already believe it, and it is my worldview, then I will argue from that perspective in this episode. And then next, two, I'll proceed to do an internal critique of the leading opposing worldviews, relativism, empiricism, and naturalism. And so as we're going through this, you have to remember that we're not just throwing around evidence right now. We're examining the presuppositions and worldviews by which we interpret evidence. So this is the step before you even get to evidence. So as I'm presenting the biblical creationist worldview, you need to come over and stand on my presuppositions with me for argument's sake. You have to understand the presuppositions and follow it to see how the evidence is going to be interpreted differently and see whether or not it meets those conditions by which all worldviews can be weighed for validity. Then, I'll do the same thing with the opposing worldviews. I'll come over and stand on your presuppositions and do an internal critique of them by the same standards. The goal being to show you your own worldview and its consequences. Most people have never truly thought through their beliefs and worldview. Most people have no idea that they have a worldview, even though it is constantly guiding their decisions and actions every day. It's also important to note that just because a worldview is not believed by others, it does not mean that they do not live in accordance with it. Consider it this way. If atheism is true and nature is all that there is, then I would only be able to live in agreement with it, regardless of whether or not I believe it, because it would be true. I may believe something completely contrary to it, but if it were true, I could not escape living by those presuppositions. I might not live by its morals, but I would have to live in agreement with its presuppositions because they would be true. They would describe reality as it is, if it were true. Likewise, it's true for atheists regarding biblical creation. If it's true, then you will be living by those presuppositions regardless of what you believe. You might not live by its morals, but you will live by its presuppositions because there would be no other way for you to live because that would be reality. 
Belief in a worldview does not make it true or false. Keep that in mind because it is the most common objection to the presuppositional apologetic, even though it is a straw man fallacy. I'm not saying that people have to believe the Bible or believe in God for them to be living on the biblical worldview's presuppositions. I'm saying that it has to be true. You might believe the contrary, but it has to be true. And I hope I'm being clear about that. So let me begin to describe the creationist worldview, the biblical creationist worldview, and then we'll begin to critique it by those points. I believe that there is one God, Deuteronomy 6.4, Isaiah 44.6.8, who created all things, Genesis 1.1 and John 1.3. I believe the mind of God controls and determines the entire universe, Isaiah 46.9-10, Psalm 135.6. He has told me that he is unchanging, Malachi 3.6 and that it is against his nature to lie, Numbers 23.19, Titus 1.2, that he is omnipresent, Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah 23.24, Psalm 139.7-8, and that he is beyond time, 2 Peter 3.8. He has told us that he is immaterial, John 4.24, Luke 24.39, and that he is eternal, 1 Timothy 1.17. He is the reference point for all truth, as it is determined by his own mind, Colossians 2.3, John 14.6, 17.17. And he will not contradict himself, 2 Timothy 2.13. He is the absolute that everything rests on. Remember, we're talking about the biblical creationist worldview. And I can give a lot of verses for every single one of those points. I'm just trying to be as brief as possible and not subject you to reading 30 verses. At least not right now. Regarding origins... The first verse of the Bible answers a few questions. It says, Genesis 1.1, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And this explains the creation of space, the heaven, of time, in the beginning, and of matter, the earth. Not as though the earth was made or that it consists of all matter, but simply at this time God made matter and the account is focused on the earth. This verifies the law of causality, that no effect can be greater than its cause. That's basic in all scientific investigation and human experience. Or as Dr. Henry Morris said, a universe comprising an array of intelligible and complex effects, including living systems and conscious personalities, is itself proof of an intelligent, complex, living, conscious person as its cause. And some footnote on Genesis 1-1 in uh, More, Henry Morris' study Bible. He was the um, father of uh, modern creationism. The Bible tells me the earth hangs on nothing. In Job 26, 7, it says, He stretcheth out the north over the empty place, and hangeth the earth upon nothing. I am told that God made man fully formed out of the dust of the ground. Genesis 1, 26-27, Genesis 2, 7. And since man is made in the image of God, I would expect him to be an intelligent, moral being. Okay, so now let's start our, with our criterion. Let's start with examining by those three points. Consistency. Though many argue that there are, quote-unquote, many contradictions in the Bible, I've been reading my Bible cover to cover for years. I've studied the original languages some, manuscript evidence, historical context, and I've never found a single genuine contradiction in, in it all these years. It may contradict what other people say because of their worldview, but it is not internally contradictory at all. And yes, I have gone through the arguments put forth on atheistic forums. They have no leg to stand on because most of them have never actually read the entire Bible. Actually, throughout history, the sciences have continually vindicated the Bible's account of things over and over again. Just look up the Hittite Empire. 
It is usually when people are ignorant of the Bible, its claims, or its history that people make the false claim of there being contradictions in it. It's much like someone handing a children's book to you that says Sally has red hair in chapter 1, and in chapter 4 she has blonde hair. The person who is looking for a contradiction and a reason to liberate themselves from the book throws it out, claiming that there are contradictions in it. When if they had read chapter 3, they would have seen that she dyed her hair. Such are the examples given by skeptics of the Bible. If they had done any serious inquiry, honestly considering its validity, they would have seen the answer. But as it's been said, if you're not looking for truth, be sure that you'll never find it. It is demonstrable that the Bible has no internal contradictions. It may contradict the claims of other worldviews and their interpretation of things. But that's why we're having this discussion, isn't it? The Preconditions of Intelligibility Does the Bible provide for the things necessary for science and human knowledge? Yes, it does. We'll go through the ones that we mentioned. The basic reliability of our memory. Man is made in the image of God. He was made a rational, intelligent being. It's because we were designed and made that we can have confidence in the reliability of our memory. Based on the Christian worldview, it makes sense that our memory would be reliable because we were made by an intelligent being. A Christian has a justifiable reason for this belief, but apart from the biblical worldview, it's very hard to prove that your memory is reliable without begging the question, without just assuming it. If my memory is simply the result of a mindless process that came about accidentally to give humans some survival value in the past, how can I justify a belief that my memory is reliable? Only the biblical worldview can justify this claim. Um, next, the basic reliability of our senses. This is much the same as the last. Why should I expect my senses to reliably inform my mind if both are simply the results of mutations that conveyed some sort of survival value in the past? If I am a creature that was designed by an intelligent and powerful creator, though, it would make sense that my senses are basically reliable. The Bible's account of creation gives me justification for this belief by stating that I was made to interact with the universe. Next, we're talking about the laws of logic. Again, the Bible gives justification for the belief in the laws of logic. The laws of logic are immaterial. They are not natural in that sense. They are conceptual. They are an abstraction. God has told me that it is his mind that controls and determines the entire universe. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, Psalm 135, verse 6. He has told me that he is unchanging, Malachi 3, 6, that it is against his nature to lie, Numbers 23, 19, Titus 1, 2, that he is omnipresent, Jeremiah 23, 24, Psalm 139, 7 through 8, and that he is beyond time, 2 Peter 3, 8. He has told me that he is immaterial, John 4, 24, Luke 24, 39, and that he is eternal, 1 Timothy 1, 17. He is the reference point for all truth as it is determined by his own mind. Colossians 2.3, John 14.6, 17.17. And he will not contradict himself. 2 Timothy 2.13. This means that his thoughts, which do not contradict, are universal when governing the operation of the universe. This explains the laws of logic being immaterial and yet universal. Man is made of the image of God and is designed to follow this pattern, though man chooses to ignore this most of the time in rebellion against God. He suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, Romans 1.18, because he doesn't like where logic leads him. He doesn't want to acknowledge God has an authority over him. All truth exists in the mind of God, I'm told, Colossians 2.3, and therefore I can expect no exceptions to them. As a Christian, I have a justifiable reason to believe in the immaterial, universal laws of logic without exception. Remember, we're not trying to explain the laws of logic. A worldview must account justifiably, non-arbitrarily, why they exist. And the Bible provides for this. Therefore, in the biblical worldview, reason, science, and rationality make sense. 
Thanks to talk about the uniformity of nature. Does the Bible give me plain statements that justify my belief that things will continue in a law-like fashion? Absolutely. God himself has told me that he would do so. In Genesis 8.22, for example, While the earth remaineth seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Here's in the example of seasons. God has specifically stated that he has made all things, Genesis 1.1, John 1.3, and that all things are upheld by his power. The so-called laws of nature are nothing more than man's description of how God consistently upholds the universe. They are immaterial concepts. And God, being the one upholding all things, explains why they are binding and universal. God is omnipresent, Psalm 139, 7-8, beyond time, 2 Peter 3.8, and is consistent, Numbers 23.19, 1 Samuel 15.29. God has explicitly promised me that he will uphold things in a generally consistent manner, Genesis 8.22, Jeremiah 30, verses 20-21. It is for this reason that I am justified in believing that things will operate tomorrow similar to today and in the past. And this also explains miracles. God is not violating some law in the universe when he does something out of the ordinary. Since these laws are merely descriptions of human understanding of how God does things, God is not breaking one of them when he decides to do something other than what we would consider to be ordinary. The Bible describes the universe as an open system where God is continually at work. Some people try to counter that and they'll say, well, if miracles could happen, then we would have no consistency in believing the future. Well, they don't have consistency in believing that the future will be as the past anyways. But nevertheless, the fact of the matter is the Bible describes miracles as being extraordinary. It is not ordinary, and that's why they're called miracles and not normal. Straw man fallacy. We could continue with other preconditions of intelligibility with such things as absolute morality and mathematics, and both of these are immaterial concepts that only the biblical worldview can give a good reason to believe in. Most people wouldn't think of absolute morality as fitting in this category, but the imperative that we ought to be rational is a moral argument. If we ought to do anything, then you are appealing to absolute morality, which you can't do if you don't believe in absolute, absolute morals. Um, thirdly, we'll talk about arbitrariness. One of the most common objections to the biblical worldview is the idea that all we need is a God concept to suit our needs in explaining all these things, which is an argument for deism or theism. This argument itself is arbitrary. If we simply came up with a God concept to suit our needs, then we are merely giving opinion. Opinions are not synonymous with truth or knowledge. Remember, why can we justify that these true things exist? In the biblical worldview, it is because God has given special revelation to man that is objective and open to examination. It does not rest on human opinion or on subjective experience. Those that claim Christianity does that show their ignorance of biblical content. This subject is the one that we'll be developing more fully in our next episode on this topic. Suffice it to say that it is because we have the revelation of God's word that, is not, that it is not arbitrary. It can be checked. It is not a person's opinionated conjecture saying, well, I believe this or that. Such a thing cannot be considered knowledge until there is a reason to believe it. The one thing that many opponents to Christianity consistently fail to do is examine the Bible's claims for validity. They look for excuses. They do not examine it for validity. Many opponents have gone down that road only to end up professing Christianity. C.S. Lewis, Josh McDowell, Simon Greenleaf, etc. Every single one of them were ardent atheists until they actually put the claims to the test. Simon Greenleaf was a principal founder 
founder of the Harvard Law School, and put the claims for the resurrection of Jesus to the test by plain secular judicial standards. In the end, he became a Christian. There were countless testimonies of surgeons, lawyers, and detectives putting the claims to the test who ended up becoming Christians because of the overwhelming evidence. We're not even talking about the evidence in this episode. I illustrate the issue this way. If you don't believe in my grandmother, it doesn't matter to me because I know her. I can easily show you her existence if you would consider the evidence. I could show you a birth certificate, driver's license, etc. You might make up excuses, though. Those are doctored or manufactured, which you would put forth arbitrarily. If I tell you to come and meet her then, and you say no, who is the one that's being irrational and unscientific then? Most atheists and skeptics do nothing more than watch the History Channel, scour atheist forums and blog posts with endless question-begging epithets and no facts, and they think that they have done research with an open mind. It's the definition of arbitrariness on their part, not Christianity's. So it is the biblical worldview that can pass all these tests. And there are others. That's why people have continuously become believers throughout the last 2,000 years. Without the biblical worldview, science and knowledge would be impossible. It is the only worldview that can give a justifiable reason to believe in the uniformity of nature, the basic reliability of our memory and senses, the laws of logic, morality, mathematics, and the list goes on. It is the only worldview that can account for itself and make sense of everything in the universe. It makes genuine knowledge possible. Okay, next... We'll move into relativism. We'll come into relativism, we'll stand upon its presuppositions, and we'll examine it. Relativism is the belief that truth is relative, that it varies from person to person. It includes the proposition that there are no absolutes. Every man does that which is right in his own eyes. While this isn't so much an explanation of origins, so many people try to apply it to that philosophically sometimes. It is a worldview, though, that is very common, so we'll briefly look at it. So let's consider consistency. Relativism is the definition of inconsistent and self-contradictory. To even say there are no absolutes is to establish an absolute. In this way, if relativism is true, as its claim, then it is necessarily false. If it is true that there are no absolutes, then it is false that there are no absolutes. The result is that if it is absolutely true, it cannot be true. Therefore, it is false. This is a philosophy that bears no resemblance to reality. Another thing to consider is that relativism is impossible to live by. This is called behavioral inconsistency. Moral relativism is a part of relativism. It's the belief that morality is relative to the person. If it is relative to the person, then you can never tell others that they are right or wrong, like telling them that Christianity is wrong. This means that you could not even lock your doors at night to protect yourself from other people's morality. If they believe it's justifiable to break into your house and murder you, then that is their morality, and who are you to stop them if it's all relative? Some respond by saying, well, we shouldn't hurt other people or encroach upon them. Well, you can't do that in relativism. To do that is to establish an absolute that it is wrong to hurt others or encroach on them. Relativism, especially moral relativism, is a standard that is impossible to live by, and it doesn't bear witness to reality. If a person believed relativism in respect to the universe, then they would probably die young. And I'm not meaning that to make light of someone's death, 
But as one philosopher very well stated, even in India we look both ways before crossing the street because we know that it is either the bus or me. It is not both and. If you refuse to believe in gravity's pull and you jump off a cliff, the universe is not going to bend to your will. Relativism is the definition of inconsistent. Therefore, it is untrue. Next, let's consider the preconditions of intelligibility. Since relativism is inconsistent on every level, it cannot provide those things necessary for knowledge. This is most easily seen when it comes to the laws of logic. Relativism is a flat denial of the law of non-contradiction. It maintains that you can have B and non-B in the same relationship at the same time in the same sense. This obviously does not bear witness to reality. All logical reasoning presupposes that there are absolutes and fixed standards of determining truth. For any assertion that a relativist makes, I could very easily say, is that true? And he would have to concede that he is uncertain. Or the best, if it's true for him, it's not true for anyone else, which actually redefines the word truth. If he was certain, then he would deny his own worldview, in a sense. I've given the illustration before in this podcast that if someone says they're a relativist and they say their name is Joe, then I'll just start calling them Sally or something. If they correct me, then they have shown that they really don't live by their professed worldview. Corrections have no place in a relativistic worldview. Truth by its very nature is exclusive. Either it is or it isn't true. The law of excluded middle. By saying that something is true, you necessarily exclude the contradictory. One main problem that makes this view continue is that people confuse the idea of truth with the idea of a belief. But just because something is believed, that does not make it true. There is nothing in any form of relativism that allows for the preconditions of intelligibility, especially the uniformity of nature. Therefore, relativism is untrue. And briefly, we'll look at arbitrariness. Relativism is arbitrary. We have no justifiable reason to believe that it is true. It provides no genuine knowledge and actually hinders it. To assert that relativism is true is to be arbitrary since there are no good reasons to believe it as true. It is mere opinion, a prejudicial conjecture to protect someone from accountability to absolutes. It is unlivable, unscientific, unjustifiable, and untrue. Next, we'll get into empiricism, and most atheists fall somewhere in the range between empiricism or naturalism. Empiricism is the belief that all knowledge comes through observation. While the biblical worldview agrees that some knowledge comes through observation, it disagrees that all knowledge comes through observation. Empiricism is the belief that all knowledge is gained through observation. The question to ask an empiricist is how they know that all knowledge is gained through observation. Did they observe all things to determine that all knowledge is gained through observation? They did not. Empiricism, as a claim, must be believed without observation. This means that all knowledge does not come from observation. It is self-defeating. If you didn't observe it, the claim of empiricism that all knowledge comes through observation to be true and yet believe it, then you violated the principle of your own belief. Because empiricism, you believe it without observation. It's self-defeating. So let's talk about consistency. Some empiricists have argued that if they allowed that one exception of their claim, then they can explain everything. They want to be able to believe their claim without observation, to explain that everything comes through observation. And I'm not joking, that's literally what they argue. This is inconsistency. A worldview 
or an ultimate standard for determining truth must be able to account for itself and everything else. It must, in that sense, be circular. Because if it relies on something else, then it cannot be an ultimate standard. It is because the ultimate standard of empiricism cannot be proved by its own standards that it destroys the possibility of an empiricist to be certain of anything. It is a ladder that rests on nothing. It doesn't meet the standards necessary to be considered consistent. There can be no exceptions in a worldview of its own claims. It is internally consistent. Therefore, it cannot be true. Next, the preconditions of intelligibility. Empiricism, because it claims that all knowledge is gained by observation, cannot account for a single precondition of intelligibility. It cannot account for the reliability of the memory or senses, because it has not observed all things to verify that they are consistently reliable. It cannot account for the laws of logic, because these are immaterial and cannot be observed at all. It cannot account for the uniformity of nature or the principle of induction, because the best it can do is conjecture based upon the past. The best it can do is argue that because nature has been uniform in the past, it will be so in the future. And as we talked about earlier, this begs the question and proves nothing. In essence, it says, because of the uniformity of nature, there will be uniformity of nature. This is circular reasoning in a fallacious sense, and it does not provide a good reason to believe that there will be uniformity of nature in the future. At the best, it is conjecture, and conjecture is not genuine knowledge. It provides no certainty in the uniformity of nature, which is the basis for science and reasoning. It does not provide any other precondition either, morality, mathematics, etc. Empiricism cannot provide a good reason to believe any of these, therefore it cannot be true. Next, arbitrariness. Empiricism, as a claim, is arbitrary. Skeptics and atheists constantly affirm that they want empirical proof of creation and that they cannot provide justifiable proof that empiricism, the idea that all knowledge comes by observation, is true. This is an arbitrary double standard, and it is the fallacy of special pleading. They cannot apply different standards to other worldviews that they do not apply to themselves. This is especially true when the biblical worldview can pass all these tests and their worldview cannot. To even claim empiricism is true, is to be arbitrary because it cannot provide a justifiable reason why all knowledge comes through observation. Therefore, it is untrue. And we'll talk about naturalism last. Naturalism is the belief that nature is all that there is, and that all things can be explained by natural processes. This worldview suffers the same fate as empiricism. The claim that nature is all that there is cannot be proven. It must be accepted before any argumentation. It is a philosophy of interpretation. And most people don't realize this, but even the idea of naturalism and evolution actually did not originate from science. It originated from Greek philosophy. Most people aren't aware of that. Darwin just put a veneer of scientific thought over it to mask it. Double-check it. Consistency. Naturalism leads to many inconsistent beliefs. It teaches that nature is all that there is, and yet they will use the laws of logic which are immaterial concepts and not natural things. Naturalists will consistently act and practice on the uniformity of nature, though their worldview does not account for it. If the universe is the result of time plus matter plus chance, how can there be consistency or the uniformity of nature? To assume these things when your own worldview does not account for them is internal contradiction. 
The same thing can be said for morality. Naturalism does not allow for any objective morality. Why should I not kill people, steal other people's things, or lie to other people? Especially if it increases my survival value. That would be consistent with naturalism. It is a shame that schools and colleges teach their students subjective moral relativism, naturalism, and that all, pe that all people are is a walking chemical accident that has no value, and then these students go out into the world and live by those ideas, and then the world punishes them for it as though they were not being consistent with what they were taught. It is funny to me that in Darwin's Origin of the Species that the one thing he did not answer was their origin. If nature is all that there is, then where did it come from? If it began as nothing, then how could it explode in a Big Bang? What caused the supposed Big Bang? What exploded? To say that nothing exploded and created everything is inconsistent. A nothing cannot explode. Which came first, matter or the laws that govern them? Particles or the physics that govern them? If matter came before the laws, then where did it come from? And why did the laws come about? If the laws came first, why did they come about if there was no matter to govern? If particles came first, then where did they come from? And where did the physics come from? If the laws of physics came first, then what were they governing? Naturalism is bankrupt when it comes to accounting for origins. The biblical worldview can cogently account for all of these things. God created all things ex nihilo, out of nothing. He caused it and he put it in order, as he presently sustains them. Naturalists want an uncreated creation, and they want an uncaused first cause. Naturalism is internally inconsistent, therefore it is not true. Preconditions of Intelligibility Naturalism cannot account for a single precondition of knowledge. Are our senses and memory basically reliable? We don't know. We believe so, but we cannot give a good reason to say so. We're all just a chemical accident, time plus chance plus matter. According to naturalism, how can I know that the chemicals and nerves in my body are correctly interpreting the world around me? According to naturalism, I can't. It is assumed unjustifiably. If I base it on past experience, then I'm trusting in my memory, which is the thing that's supposed to be tested. Naturalism cannot account for the laws of logic. The laws of logic are immaterial and not natural. A law of logic is not something that you can pick up and touch. It's not a part of nature. They're a concept, an abstraction. Why then are they in existence? Why then are they universal? Some may argue, I know many people that use logic that don't believe the Bible. Well, that's the fallacy of the irrelevant thesis. I'm not saying that they must believe the Bible to use the laws of logic, but the biblical worldview must be true for them to be able to use them. They might not believe it, but it has to be true for them to be able to use them. Laws of logic are not explainable by atheistic worldviews. Therefore, it is inconsistent for them to use the laws of logic. Laws of logic are just something we've developed because they're useful, some may say. Well, that makes things reduced to relativism. If you can't, can just cast them off willy-nilly, then you must begin to accept contradictions. You can never tell people that they are wrong, and you could never argue for anything, like trying to argue that the laws of logic are not binding. The laws of logic are something that has been discovered by man, not created in the sense of created by man. They bear witness to reality. If they were just a pragmatic thing, that because they're useful, we use them, then we would be able to cast them off, not use them, and reality would still make sense. We can't, therefore you're wrong. And others may say, well, laws of logic are just chemical reactions of the brain. Well, if the laws of logic were just some form of chemical reaction in the brain, then why is it that everyone bears witness to the same ideas? 
Who's to guarantee that some other person's brain would develop the same laws as you? How then would rational communication and argumentation be possible between people? What would be the standard by which other people's are right or wrong? This also reduces to relativism. Therefore, it's untrue. Naturalism cannot provide for the preconditions of intelligibility. Therefore, it's untrue. Next, we'll consider arbitrariness. Much the same as empiricism, naturalism is something that is believed arbitrarily. It is assumed a priori. The claim, nature is all that there is, cannot be proven. Indeed, it's easily disproven by all of the immaterial things that the universe bears witness to. Absolute morality, laws of logic, principle of induction, etc. To hold to naturalism, therefore, without rational justification, is arbitrary. All things that are believed arbitrarily cannot be considered as providing genuine knowledge, since the foundation of belief of that system is in question. This is another ladder that rests on nothing. It is assumed. It is a presupposed philosophy of interpretation that cannot account for itself or everything else that follows. It is untrue. Dr. Gary Habermas said this regarding naturalism. The warm little pond scenario was invented ad hoc to serve as a materialistic reductionist explanation of the origin of life. It is unsupported by any other evidence, and it will remain ad hoc until such evidence is found. One must conclude that, contrary to the established and current wisdom, a scenario describing the genesis of life on earth by chance and natural causes, which can be accepted on the basis of fact and not faith, has not yet been written. Some naturalists hold that since life exists, naturalistic evolution must have occurred, in spite of the improbabilities. Others contend that some as-yet-unknown laws must have allowed life to begin without the action of any supernatural being, again in spite of the improbabilities. These solutions beg the question. It is circular to assume naturalistic evolution to be the case in spite of the evidence against such non-theistic solutions. That is Gary Habermas's um, article, Paradigm Shift, a Challenge to Naturalism in Bibliotheca Sacra, um, 1989, pages 442-443. So here's some thoughts. Most atheists will not accept what I've said in this episode, though they will argue using logic which their worldviews cannot account for. They'll say things like, you're presenting a false either-or scenario that it must be either evolution or God. Well, how can you use logic when your worldview cannot account for it? Can you tell me that you know the laws of logic are binding and on what basis you can justifiably make that argument? Even evolutionary scholars have said that it must be spontaneous generation or particles to people evolution or special creation. It's not a false either-or, it's a legitimate one. I hear people who hold to subjective moral relativism make arguments all the time that are moral in their basis. They'll say, how can you believe in, and follow such a fill-in-the-blank God who would fill in the blank? Well, things are, not true or or, things are not true or not based on whether or not you believe them. And that argument is an assumed premise that all things that you don't like are untrue, and no rational person believes that premise. If you wanted to put that argument out, it would say, all things that I believe are untrue. I don't like what God does, therefore he must be untrue. And that's ridiculous. In addition to that, the only way to charge God in any way, shape, or form with any immorality is to hold to absolute morals to which all beings are accountable. You cannot be a subjective moral relativist and tell others that they have done something wrong. It is to be inconsistent with your own worldview, and it denies your own worldview. All of these arguments I've heard before, but no one sticks around for the answers to them. And that shows that they really don't care what's true. They pick a worldview that allows them to live how they want to. And I would rather people who were just honest.
So if anyone wants to argue, you're free to do so. Here's what I want you to do first, and I won't respond to any email that does not at least try this first, because it shows you aren't listening and you really don't care, and I'm not going to waste my time. I want you to tell me how your alternative worldview can account for the preconditions of knowledge while being internally consistent and not being arbitrary. You can't create, make a single logical fallacy. If you don't at least try to figure out your own worldview, then you have no basis to criticize mine, especially when mine passes the, those tests. What you have to remember is that you can't ignore these questions. Your view of origins must answer these questions, or it is not even possible. If a theory of origins is true, then it must account for everything that followed the quote-unquote beginning. These things are necessary for life and science. Therefore, if you can't cogently and justifiably account for them, then your view is necessarily wrong. So here's some food for thought. Here's a brief list, list of some interesting quotations. From Robert Jastrow, Scientists have no proof that life was not the result of an act of creation. That was from The Enchanted Loom, Mind in the Universe, 1981, page 19. He's a leading astronomer, and he's not known to be a creationist. Another quote, The evolutionary establishment fears creation science because evolution itself crumbles when challenged by evidence. In the 1970s and 1980s, hundreds of public debates were arranged between evolutionary scientists and creation scientists. The latter scored resounding victories, with the result that, today, few evolutionists will debate. Isaac Asimov, Stephen Jay Gould, and the late Carl Sagan, while highly critical of creationism, all declined to debate. As James Perloff in his book Tornado in a Junkyard, 1999, page 241. Here's another one by H. Lipson. Lipson, sorry. Evolution became, in a sense, a scientific religion. Almost all scientists have accepted it, and many are prepared to bend their observations to fit in with it. That was H. Lipson in his article, A Physicist Looks at Evolution in Physics, Physics Bulletin 31, 1980, page 138. He is not known to be a creationist. So here is somebody who was not known to be a creationist, a, phys a physicist, saying evolution became a scientific religion that people accept usually without any reason at all, and they will bend their observations to fit with it. So much of the atheistic claim that no, evolution is not a religion, neither is atheism, whenever people from their own camp say that it is. And that's not the only person who has said that who is not a Christian or not a creationist. Here's another one. And I believe this one is not meant... I don't, I don't, I didn't check to see if he was a creationist or not. I'm guessing, since he wrote it in the Scientific American, he is not a creationist. Quote is, the first and main problem is the very existence of the Big Bang. One may wonder, what came before? If space-time did not exist then, then how could everything appear from nothing? What arose first? The universe of the laws determining its evolution? Explaining this initial singularity... Where and when it all began still remains the most intractable problem of modern cosmology. That was Andre Lind, The Self-Reproducing Inflationary Universe, article in the Scientific American, vol volume 271, November 1994, page 54. And I would guess since he wrote it for the Scientific American, he's not a creationist. Next quote this is the last one. 
No matter how large the environment one considers, life cannot have had a random beginning. Troops of monkeys thundering away at random on typewriters could not produce the works of Shakespeare, for the practical reason that the whole observable universe is not large enough to contain the necessary monkey hordes, the necessary typewriters, and certainly not that waste paper baskets required for the de deposition of wrong attempts. The same is true for living material. The likelihood of the spontaneous formation of life from inanimate matter is one to a number with 40,000 knots after it. Knots being zeros. It is big enough to bury Darwin and the whole theory of evolution. There was no primeval soup, neither on this planet nor on any other. And if the beginning of life were not random, then must therefore have been the product of purposeful intelligence. And that was Sir Fred Hoyle and Chandra, I might butcher this last name, Wickramasinghe, Evolution from Space, from Simon and Schuster, 1984, page 148. There are thousands of quotations like this from, the, from secular scientists who don't believe in creation, and nobody ever hears them. They just dismiss them. Scientists who are honest admit that they are baffled. And perhaps I'll give a longer list of quotations in the next episode in this series. Now, of course, this being a Christian-based podcast, I'm not going to end without presenting the gospel, and I challenge you to take time to listen to it, as it only takes a minute, literally, probably. Most people think that they know what the gospel is, or what it is about, and most people are completely wrong. It's not about church, it's not about a decision, it's not about a prayer someone said sometime, somewhere, and it's not about asking Jesus into your heart. That's not, that's not the biblical gospel. Jesus Christ said, and this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. That's John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, 20. Those that care about the truth, and that want the truth, are looking for it. And that's why they examine things to see if there is validity to them. The only people that don't look for the truth are people who don't want it. Most people never honestly investigate Christianity because they want no accountability. However, if it's true, and it is, then willful ignorance will not protect you in the day of judgment. The least thing that you can do for yourself is to investigate it, honestly. There is nothing in this world that you get to take with you when you die. There will be no U-Haul following the hearse to the graveyard. Because God is a king, and you are under his jurisdiction as the creator of the universe and all things in it. As a king and judge, he has a moral law. You have sinned against the righteous law of a king, and you are a criminal in his sight. And this is what the Bible refers to as sin, or breaking God's law, and being a sinner, a violator of God's law. God says, thou shalt not lie. You've lied, and you are a liar. People have a problem with that? Well, if you've ever murdered once, people call you a murderer. It's no different. God says, thou shalt not commit adultery, but he magnified this to include the very thoughts and intents of your heart also, Matthew 5, 28. You've done this at least once, and so you're an adulterer in his sight. This isn't including the greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There are others also. The penalty for violating God's law is death. You have earned it by willfully breaking God's commandments. There is coming a day of judgment when all of your crimes are laid out before you and you were sentenced to your death. And in eternity, this day is called the second death. It's eternal death. But the king and judge is merciful and says that he has no desire in the pleasure. He has, he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that he should turn from his wicked ways to serve him faithfully. 
He has himself made a way for you to be pardoned. And this is called the gospel. The word gospel just means good news. You were in a hopeless situation on your own, but God offers you good news. He himself has made an offering to pay for your sins if you would acknowledge your crimes to him, your sins, and embrace your Savior, the one who has made a way for you to be reconciled to the King, Jesus Christ. God became a man to live a righteous life, die a terrible death that he didn't deserve, be buried in a tomb, and God raised him from the dead as a testimony to you. He says that he is not only able to forgive you, but that he is willing. Your part is to acknowledge your sins to him, repent of them, that means to turn from them, and to embrace your only hope of salvation, the holy and righteous judge and king, Jesus Christ. Now, I said in the beginning, there was nothing new. And there was nothing really original about anything I said in this episode. I didn't come up with this stuff myself. I read some of these things in uh, Dr. Jason Lyle's book, The Ultimate Proof of Creation, and I looked up some articles and lectures that he gave on the subject. He referenced Dr. Greg Bonson in a certain series of lectures that he did on that subject. So I read um, some of that stuff, and I looked up Dr. Greg Bonson. And Dr. Greg Bonson himself got it from Dr. Cornelius Van Til. And so you go and look up some of the stuff on Dr. Cornelius Van Til. You can reference a lot of good stuff on YouTube, specifically Greg Bonson. He did uh, several debates, several pretty famous debates. Um, and I would recommend the debates that Dr. Greg Bonson did with Dr. Um, Gordon Stein, I believe he was a doctor, and another George Smith, who I believe was a doctor as well. Also, I would recommend the debates done by Antony Flew, one of the most prolific atheist writers of all time, who abandoned atheism. And he, is the, he was the guy who famously said, after coming out of atheism, the most prolific atheistic philosopher of all time, most likely. And he abandoned it and started ridiculing people like Richard Dawkins because he said he didn't know what he's talking about. Now, Antony Flew did not become a Christian, but he abandoned atheism because he said it was wrong after writing about it for decades. That enough should give you enough to actually look at things. But um, I would recommend the debates that uh, Dr. Gary Habermas did with Antony Flew. And it's interesting because in the beginning of the second debate with Dr. Gary Habermas, Antony Flew admitted the historical facts regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they both agreed in the beginning of the debate that was a good place to begin. That's a notable admission. And so I'd recommend those debates if you're just interested in listening to them. Probably all of them are available on YouTube to watch for free. I myself, I'm not reformed in my theology like uh, Greg Bonson, Cornelius Van Til, Jason Lyle, but I appreciate the philosophical and apologetic insight that these men have given to others. And I would recommend their works on apologetics, um, maybe not all of Van Til's, but I can't endorse all of their doctrinal viewpoints. So if you were intrigued by anything in this podcast, it wasn't because of me, it was because of these other men's labors. In closing, like I said, I'll be going over what sets apart the God of the Bible from every other God concept in the next episode in this series. Lord willing, that'll be in a couple weeks. I have another episode that I told someone that I would do, and they have already had to wait too long. So after I do that episode, we'll continue this series. In closing, I'll sum up my one good reason for believing for you. If the biblical worldview wasn't true, then science would be impossible. Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. We do hope and pray that you would commit your life to Christ and continue in Him. 
we desire to see people seeking Jesus Christ and coming to know Him personally. If you have questions about salvation, the Bible, or your own walk with Christ, please contact Brother Jonathan by email. Brother John, that's J-O-N, at remnantbiblefellowship.com. That's Brother John at remnantbiblefellowship.com.